Hi there, and welcome to Picking Up Rocks, a podcast that strikes a balance between playful curiosity and serious inquiry. In today's episode, our guest is Professor Bryony Rogers, CEO of Fire to Flourish at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute, where she leads a pioneering initiative to rethink our approach in the aftermath of disaster, working in partnership with communities around how to redefine our exit out of a disaster and how to redefine our existence within it. We jump into the conversation around how do you give space and create that space to allow people to feel safe to share their thoughts, concerns, ideas around how to get more resilient in the face of disaster. This conversation then goes on to really interesting places. I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. I hope you get something from it. Brioni shares some honest insight around leading an organization, trying really hard to think of new approaches and best ways forward to hopefully scale this when they exit the sandbox and, and take it further afield. Every community is different and every community has had a very long history and then a disaster has hit and that's got a very long future ahead. And so from a community perspective, um, the, them, the community having that power and that agency to um, map out its pathway of recovery and be in the lead in, in driving that is really critical. The communities that we're partnering with, um, there's three in New South Wales and one in Victoria, uh, they, the stories that they tell us, that what they say is that the, the bushfire itself, yeah, it was really challenging, crisis, scary. But in fact, a lot of the trauma that they're still carrying was in fact about how they were supported or not supported in the aftermath. You know, what is the hazard? And, and part of that was that there was a lot of top-down support that was imposed upon a community and whether that was uh, outsiders coming in and taking over what had been a whole lot of really strong community-led immediate response effort on the ground or assumptions about what a community would need. You know, we've heard stories down in Malakuta about pallets of licorice bullets being delivered to Malakuta where they didn't have, you know, basic building supplies and food supplies, but they had lots of licorice um, or, wow. you know, stockpiles of, of clothes or food or things that had not been requested and not needed, um, you know, as being a really additional layer of trauma and workload when the community actually already had its work cut out for us. Um, and so I think that that first responder point you're making is a really important one. I think there's, you know, a lot of right emphasis on the role of the emergency services in um, providing support to communities. And when we talk about community-led response and recovery, in no way is that undermining or negating the need for the, that really important role of the emergency services. But often it can take time to for those emergency services to get into community. And what we experienced in that bushfire season four years ago was the fires were so widespread that the emergency services were so thinly spread that communities had to, they were the first responders. Um, and we're experiencing it again at the moment. Two of our partner communities have, have had repeated fires in the last two weeks. Uh, and again, roads were blocked. The community needed to mobilise themselves to uh, to be ready and to um to to respond in ways that that were right for them. Mm. And so the end goal for Fire to Flourish is, yeah, can you explain that to me? I'm trying to sort of uh, 
picture that, but what is the end goal or, or really striving towards to achieve is empower communities, number one, I would imagine, to flourish. And then how what does that look like? And, and can you explain that to us and how, how that's going to happen? Mm. Yeah, communities feeling um, equipped and enabled and supported to lead their resilience building efforts. Mm-hmm. I think what's been important for our partner communities is that the bushfires happened four years ago. Then we had COVID straight after. Many of them were then hit by devastating floods. Now there's another fire, you know, in half the communities mm-hmm. again. So there's a um, a reckoning that we are not, no longer can we talk about prepare for a disaster, experience a disaster, and then a long recovery from the disaster. It's compound events, you know, repeated fast. And so a thriving community uh, for Fire to Flourish is a community that can live with that context and that when a, an extreme weather event happens, they're able to cope, they're able to adapt, and they're also looking at some of the, the underlying conditions that are producing inequities in the community and, you know, exacerbating disadvantage that has come from, um, you know, lack of investment in in infrastructure and education and health services and so on. That's the other lens, I guess, when we talk about flourish, fire to flourish. It's about really holistic community development and a, a community feeling like they're able to live the lives they want to lead and really thrive in the face of, face of climate change. How do you allow different knowledge systems and different knowledge works to sit together and have equal share of value and then also maybe break down preconceived ideas of what knowledge is and and what is value behind that knowledge. This is such an important part of the work that we're doing. Uh, You know, even just within a university or academic world, there's many different disciplinary perspectives and ways of doing things and ways of thinking about things. You know, that interdisciplinary work is a... um, really strong emerging direction and trend, I guess, in universities to recognise that you need to think more broadly. But that's only talking about the academic world. Then we bring in, you know, that community lived experience and and, and knowledge and um, practitioner knowledge and lived experience of, of lived expertise of how things work. Uh, Aboriginal and First Nations knowledge systems and ways of knowing and ways of thinking and ways of doing the power comes when we do bring all of those different ways of thinking together because that's the that's the melting pot and the interface where innovation and and transformative thinking is needed because if we're all just staying in our own predefined boxes of ways of thinking so we're never going to do the transformative thinking and shifts that are needed in the disaster resilience space and and beyond uh and so for me it's been um, really important that we are really explicit about this really shared knowledge work that we're doing and to be really explicit about the sorts of conditions we need to create for ourselves for that work to be possible because we've all had the experience of, you know, butting up against someone that doesn't think like you do and, you know, not being able to progress forward. So, you know, I guess people go through ups and downs in terms of I know what I'm doing, I know what the answer is, I'm going to tell everyone what the answer is and then having to retreat when 
you deeply listen to what someone else is saying and really try to understand where they're coming from. Mm. And so, you know, a bit of a journey, I guess. And again, relationships is absolutely key, but there's a level of trust and a commitment to taking the time for that deep listening and learning together. And I think really importantly, humility is the Mm. most important factor here. Everyone coming at the shared challenge and a shared agenda and the shared work um, with humility to recognise that my way of thinking and knowing may well not be what's needed or, you know, there's an opportunity for, for us to come together and create new. But while creating that new, also not diluting the value of the individual knowledges. So, you know, we're not, if, we, if we're baking a cake with all these different ingredients we want the cake to be delicious but we also want you know the chocolate to shine through or the banana to shine through like we still want to have the um the threads and the integrity of the different knowledge to taste the raw ingredients as a whole together and pay homage to where they've gone for sure i'm hearing that analogy and and it's something as you speak around sharing that knowledge but the the challenge in today's day and age, stepping aside from, you know, going from fire to flourish is we live in echo, echo chambers. Like that's important work and really there's something powerful about people coming together to solve, you know, real issues that affect everyone, whatever sort of status you are in that community. It's it's a powerful moment to sort of build back a bit of town square sort of ideas and how have you created that space? Because I feel like across society, everyone's struggling to find that space for one and then to live in that space comfortably. And if and if you watch too much um, X now or Twitter or social, like you, you, you really feel like it's corroded, but it feels like that's not the truth when you step outside and really start to face problems side by side or um, fence to fence, depending on the neighbourhood or community. There's a really great and powerful framework that I was introduced to by Theory Weary, an Aboriginal-led organisation, David Major and Jason Adler, uh, the Dignity Framework. And it's been used in, um, you know, places of of long conflict, post-war and so on, that really emphasises the importance of everyone having dignity Mm. when they're engaging. And I think that's a really important um, emphasis for, for us when we're bringing different people together what does everyone need to be able to feel dignity to then engage from a position of feeling respected feeling valued and feeling heard and it doesn't mean there won't be robust discussions or you know disagreements about the way forward but if everyone has that sense of dignity then you're in a much better position to have productive outcomes through through whatever it is that you're working through mm, and have you seen that with the work that you've done so far that people have responded really well there has been robust and there has been to and fro but people are starting to hear each other and and start to move forward somewhere yeah yeah we are and again that's that time piece that to work through work through the discussions and also um skills that there's facilitation needed for those sorts of discussions and I think from a skills building perspective when we think about disaster resilience you know there's the really tangible practical skills um you know chainsaw skills and so on to Mm. in the peak of a disaster but in fact community governance and facilitation skills are really really critical and that's a whole area of um investment and capability uplift that we we need i think across communities and the organizations interfacing with the communities to recognize the importance of really strong 
facilitation to create those spaces where um what would what would that look like at scale Brioni? like in terms of like what would that look like is that jumping onto an organization that already exists or is that something completely new to a degree that has to come in there oh i don't think it's completely new at all there's lots of organizations that um you know that can support and be part of that capability building agenda and, and pathway uh but I think what's needed is a recognition of the investment needed to enable that sort of work to happen at scale um, and the the models that allow it to be um, spread. What we hear from our community partners is that it's helpful sometimes to have outsiders hold the space, that it, it can be compromising for someone local to hold that neutral facilitation role. Um, and, you know, that's certainly something that, we are supporting our community staff members with that they wear multiple hats they're they're employees of monash they're representatives of the program and they're members of the community so they their job doesn't end at the end of the day because when they're at the supermarket at seven o'clock at night people want to talk about what's happening and you know and that 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 creates a vulnerability that really needs to be protected and and supported um uh and so i think the power of having someone sensitive neutral and really very well skilled in facilitation to support but also having had probably a lived experience of what the communities they're working with um are going through so that they've got that yeah that sensitivity and, and awareness I suppose so I, I think that's potentially in a, a community to community peer model of some kind that allows the skills to grow and support and and flourish at scale while still um, having that opportunity for neutrality. Yeah, that neutrality I think is key for people to be able to feel safe to share and, and get rid of some of the things that may be existing there or may not. And so what are some of the innovative ways you're looking at fire to flourish to the engaging community that may have not felt safe to participate and, and getting that sort of social buy-in and, and people on board to feel safe to share their story or their insight around what's challenging them, where they want to be, what's that looking like in the sandbox approach and what's working and what hasn't worked? We are putting a lot of emphasis on the relationship element, so coming at it from a perspective of fun and connection, you know, starting with people first, um, you know, connecting to country has has been a really important focus for our workshops and and activities Uh, and so for the international audience you know Aboriginal cultural practices around connecting to country um, you know acknowledging place and and connecting to culture as well is a really important starting point for a conversation so that um, everyone's feeling really grounded and respectful and respected um, and so, you know, building some of those elements in to set really strong relational foundations with, with the processes, um, emphasising story sharing so that, you know, people have the opportunity to, again, connect through story but also learn from story. Um, you know, when people are sharing their experiences, a whole lot of patterns come out of hearing different people's experiences which start to then point to what priorities the communities might um, have that may be shared but also might be different. So I think also holding space for for difference Um, and then also introducing some frameworks to support communities to think about um, 
some of the systemic issues and the systemic challenges, you know, if if this is a, a thing that's happened and it was not a it was a negative experience, why did that happen and what's underlying that and what might be some of those deeper levers of change that we can start to, um, to start to address together. Mm. And the other element is um coming back to the funding model side of things, a lot of the challenge that communities have had is that the funding that's been available for recovery and resilience building has been very um bound by bureaucracy, uh, you know, the guidelines might not match what the community have identified as a priority or the timeframes don't match or the administration needed to actually secure grant funding um, is just too overwhelming and difficult to navigate that it's not worth people's time or, you know, really negatively impacting the community when, you know, different parts of the community are pitted against each other in a competitive process. So instead of actually strengthening that social cohesion, the act of and process of recovery is undermines that community fabric because of that competition. All of this is really negative and needs a whole lot of reimagining and innovating. So that's where our participatory granting experimentation comes in. What could it look like if the process of coming together, developing a shared vision, getting a really informed evidence-based insight into needs and priorities coupled with conversations around well what do we want to invest in collectively and let's make let's use deliberative democracy processes at that really grassroots level to come to some shared decisions and the the evidence and the um, results so far are really promising about the power of this sort of approach. Mm. It sounds needed and it also sounds very very hard and delicate, I suppose. Very delicate is the word in terms, and with that delicate process of allowing everyone to be heard, and then getting to somewhere, and then also communicating the the fact that we might not get it right. This is the sandbox approach, and we're wanting to push boundaries and and be innovative to make sure we pick up every rock, look at look under every shell to try and find the best way forward. How have you found that as a leader, leading this organisation in a sandbox approach where everyone has you know, and rightfully so agency in that, but you're trying to push it forward somewhere. What have you found that you're putting in your toolbox and constantly turning to to help sort of push that organisation forward and make sure everyone feels safe, heard, but also doing the work that needs to be done? The most important ingredient has been time that these sorts of things can't be rushed. And, you know, even for us as a whole program, um, we're three years, coming up to three years into our five-year program. I think we thought we'd be further along than we were at the, at the beginning and, you know, COVID didn't help, but the time it needed, we needed to build relationships in community, to be invited in and to be trusted was absolutely essential. So the most important thing that we've learned and um, been guided by is going at the pace of trust. And sometimes that can be really um, challenging and at times frustrating, but it cannot be compromised because as soon as we step past that, then we lose all the trust um, as a program, but also in terms of the community processes that some conversations need time to be had and it would undermine the work and, you know, get in the way of good outcomes if, if, if it goes any faster than that. 
Um, so with Monash University leading the program, we've got research and evidence generation and, and learning woven through everything that we're doing in that real action learning sense, action research. Um, and so in there's a lot of complexity in what we're doing. There's a lot of uncertainty and emergence because it's community-led priorities around how we're taking things. I think as a leader, I've needed to be really um thoughtful about holding space for people in that learning journey and to be really explicit about naming that we're on a learning journey together and to help people um, make sense, I guess, of the the bumps because when you're innovating and experimenting, it means things do go wrong and when things go wrong is also when you do a lot of the learning and there's also a lot that goes right and feels really exciting and promising. So I've found as a leader really holding that space and putting in doing that sense making or helping people do the sense making together of what's the big picture here why are we doing this what's what's our vision for change how do we want to see communities into the future being really well set up for um coping adapting and transforming with disaster and using that as a framework and as a lens to be making sense of the experiences that we're having along the way, which, you know, it, it, they're challenging, rewarding, satisfying, confronting, and, and all the things that come when you're in complex spaces. And what's what's an example of, have you found, I often find mistakes lead to something quite new or it can lead to just a cross out, but can also lead to a new insight that's that's come through. But how have you found, or how have you communicated to the communities who are there that they have unique, opportunity to share their learning is that been a big part to being like this is a moment that you could also help your community but really help others who are going to go through something similar and this is we're sort of in this journey together to be able to develop something that's going to have you know a potential to have really great impact on the way service delivery and recovery come about community have responded so well and in fact that's part of part of the unique value that communities are seeing, I think, in, in our program. And we weren't sure how that element, the, the the learning, the research and the systems change focus, how that would be received by our partner communities. Would they just want to be focusing on their recovery? And if they were, that's okay. But uh, people have really appreciated and, and what our partner communities are telling us, it feels like their lived experiences are being honoured and they've got an opportunity to, to drive change and make a difference to communities everywhere. And that's a key um, pull factor for people to be, be involved in, in the program. Um, and the generosity that people show in sharing their stories and being involved in these co-design processes, um, you know, people want to be and they can see the promise and uh, I think there's a real power. I think one of the things I'm learning, and again, it's playing out with the recent bushfires in our partner communities, that we've got this hyper-local network, you know, small communities right down into the grassroots, but also connected up to a really strong stakeholder network with organisations involved in the sector up to the national level and beyond. And so this ability for information, for, for that community lived experience and community voice to reach right up to, you know, up to the top layers of government very rapidly is very powerful. And similarly, the, the horizontal network of communities supporting each other um, has become a really important and powerful part of the, the program model. 
Uh, and that's something we're really intentionally fostering, that learning across communities, including by establishing a, um, a, a national learning network for community led by community called the Disaster Wise Communities Network. And that's a platform for communities to come together and do that that learning and that sharing um, as, a, as a collective m- movement. So can you take us through that that process as you were talking there? And it sounds that sounds like a big pain point for communities is not feeling heard when something wrong happens and takes a long time to be heard. But it feels like you've almost done a bit of uh, neuro re re rewiring the neurons of of government and how people hear and how people share voice. But how have you built that in? It seems like a, a key a key aspect of of what is needed for for communities to feel heard and have the resources to be able to do so in sort of breaking through the the bureaucracy that can sit there? The government um, organisations that we're working with are really aware that community voice need to be at the table and need to be part of um, part of the reimagining and the reshaping. I think it can be difficult, you know, for a federal government to reach down and get access to community and, you know, know who to invite and how to do it. So we've, I guess, had a role in um, convening different combinations of people together in really important discussions. So, you know, whenever we're running events, for example, to really explore and unpack a topic, we're aiming to get at least half of the participants to be community members and community leaders alongside members of local and state governments and service providers and other agencies Uh, And every time the richness of that discussion and the power of the insights that come out of that have been quite transformative for everyone in the room. Um, And we've done that then particularly, you know, for example, um, foregrounding Aboriginal wisdom is one of our core principles. Uh, And so we've hosted events that really bring together Aboriginal leaders and Torres Strait Islander leaders to... um, speak their voice and share their leadership and their excellence uh, and that's been something that hasn't had enough attention in Australia or ha- have, hasn't been done enough um, but it, again it's been really welcomed so it feels like we're really at a tipping point in the country around recognising the importance of community voice, lived experience, lived expertise, co-design uh, and what I hope we're doing in Fire to Flourish is developing the you know those models and tools and templates that help with that how question um so that it become can become the norm Mm. and what is that tools and templates because it feels like there's lots of different elements that'll look like that but um, i suppose you could dig dig but you've got a couple more years to be able to figure out where that scale is but it feels like there's a few templates and products that are going to be developed of that it's an exciting space and something that um that needs to be worked upon so kudos to the team out there working on that yeah, thanks. It's um, it's a really important approach to research for, for us and for Monash. What's the really practical, impactful um, products and scalable insights mm. and tools that can come out, you know, ranging from process, you know, workshop plans and methodologies to bring people together, you know, to have those sorts of discussions, participatory granting toolkits. How do you actually, what tools are needed to help people have that democratic community-led decision-making around grant funding. Um, Placemaking is another element of process and tools that we're working with, you know, looking at built environment and and place-based imagining and visioning and planning and design um, and doing that in really 
collaborative ways across the community. Uh, also looking at resilience measurement. There's a lot of talk about this word resilience, but what does it really mean? And, and you know, communities themselves don't love the word resilience because, you know, we're already resilient. Look like look what we've been through. Um, and so I guess tools to help people unpack what are the factors that strengthen a community's resilience and how well are we doing, where are our strengths, where are our needs, um, uh, as, as well as, I guess, models for how communities can access the forms of support that they need. So there is absolutely a financial support need, but often what communities are looking for are access to, for example, professional skills, advice on insurance, um, advice on business models, um, you know, technical expertise for rebuilding. And some communities that are doing quite well in their recovery happen to have had retired professionals that live in that community and are happy to volunteer those skills. But many communities don't have have, have people um, that have those skills in their home area. And so, you know, developing models and partnerships, I guess, to help communities access, you know, training, upskilling kind of work. Um, so I guess uh, developing a picture of what are the capacities that a community needs to draw on or wants to draw on to help in their preparedness recovery and um, and long-term resilience building work and how can we systematise ways for communities to access those capacities in ways that are self-determined, um, easy and accessible and available at scale. Mm. And that's, I think that's the big challenge is available at scale and to allow communities may have not experienced it, but may soon to be able to get prepared and what that looks like. Does it go through the CFA? In terms of getting community involved, how does the message get out there? I'm thinking about where we just moved. And I'm like, how would that come about? Is it through the traditional methods like uh, CFA, little community organisations coming together? Like what have you identified as key to first get the people who may have not feel, felt safe and then just everyone else to be able to come and how do you how do you prevent people from oversharing who have maybe had the mic for too long yeah every community has um has strengths and um you know existing organizations or groups that are already anchor points for the community so it's been really important for us to start where those strengths and existing anchors are for our program, um, we've recruited local staff as a key part of our model, uh, and it's really those local staff that are leading the the implementation of the program for their community. Then uh, I think the general principle has been build relationships, really understand the community as a place-based system, and I think that that lens has been important that we're not just talking about disaster and emergency you know it's it's that community development lens and all the different touch points that a community might have in living their lives and in fact all of that needs to come together as a cohesive system to help that community and or to be part of that community during during and after a disaster event um and so yeah going where there's strong points leveraging what already exists Again, one of the big, um, you know, complaints and more traumatising parts of the recovery has been when those existing anchor organisations had been doing a really important leadership role in their community but then had outsiders come in and take over and impose their model and undermine that leadership role that the community had. Um, 
you know, what we've seen in a number of our communities and, and other communities around Australia is that Aboriginal controlled organisations have that really strong anchor role in community. They know their community. They're always there. They're, they're providing that support over the long term. But we were not set up as a institutional fabric to recognise the role than what overlooked, not included in information flows, um, not resourced to do the work in, in the disaster recovery period. Um, and so I think there's some really important reimagining we can be doing. What if we start to work with those existing organisations on the ground and recognise those people and organisations as really valid players that need to be supported and enabled and connected and resourced to have that really formalised role in, in disaster settings? Mm -hmm. And so when this goes to scale, what do you see some of the, when you step outside the pilot organisations that you have close relationships with, what are some of the sort of ideas that you have playing around now around that education piece of getting that awareness and getting that pe people to pick up the right, um, the right tools at the right time? Yeah, I think there's a, a need that at the, at the community scale, there's complexity. It's this really deep, messy, complex system of community. At the organisational ecosystem of support scale, it's messy. There's a whole lot of really amazing work being done by many different types of organisations, um, you know, from private, public, you know, philanthropic sectors. There, there's amazing work being done all over the place. But the mediation between what community needs at the ground and what support is available um, in the ecosystem uh, to me, it seems that we need a platform that can help to to mediate and broker the connections in that really self-determined way by a community, but also for that ecosystem of support to be really well connected, um, understanding who's doing what, why, let's not duplicate, let's understand the different values that we each provide and um, be really thoughtful, connected and focused on learning and focus, focused on systems change as, as a collective um, because I think the it reflects, I guess, the broader societal shifts needed when we look at all the big, wicked challenges that we're facing societally at the moment. We've got to reimagine how we work together and how we um, have that collective impact. So um, mediation, uh, brokering, connecting and learning um, and having some shared vision of where we want to head because we know business as usual isn't going to cut it seems to be really important to me. A challenge in getting that out, but you, are, I like the way uh, listeners might not, might not be able to see that, the top and bottom in terms of um, brokering the two sort of ecosystems of, of small and large and, and when things hit. But, yeah, I'd like to see what happens with that platform and where that comes about and how people sort of raise a hand both in person and digitally, it seems like there's there's something that um, gets a bit of harmony around there. But um, and I think there's also a, um, you know, one of my passions is thinking about the role of universities in society and, you know, back to what we're talking about around knowledge systems and knowledge work. I would love to see a future where the kind of the silos between the university as an academic institution and community really broken down and the universities being seen as a capacity and a resource for communities to draw on. And I guess that's another element of experimentation that we're doing in Fire to Flourish. What is really true partnership between community and, and university 
look like and what are we learning about what needs to be in place for that to happen? How can we be opening up our doors so that all the infrastructure and the capability and the you know the expertise and the resources that exist within a university environment to be accessible for communities to drive their um, visions and, and pathways forward. I love that you said that. That's a big passion of mine is how to share and make information more accessible. And I feel like a lot of people's brain power can sometimes go to waste at a university. Not go to waste, but could have a bigger impact, I think. Um, and more ears could could actually pick that up. And how to make, I think one of the biggest challenges is how to make that information accessible. And it's it's really nice to hear where your brain is at with that and, and the challenges that you will face, but that the desire is there to sort of open those gates and, and provide that information, I think, is, is something that's really cool. And I feel like a it's a great time for universities to also, if there's ears for that, to reimagine what a university is right now. And that's a great space to be because I think there's mutual benefit, um, which which always helps things progress in, in a good, healthy way. I, will, I could speak to you for a long time around this and I appreciate your time um, given to share insight to where you are in the sandbox of innovation for Fire to Flourish. So thank you very much for joining. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I've been your host, Patrick Beggs, founder of Her Production. Until next time.